Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. Today in Scripture, we're going to be going back into Nehemiah 11, which we went through last week, just for a few verses, and then we're going to be finishing up chapter 12. So out of Nehemiah chapter 11, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. While nine out of ten remained in the other towns, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And then in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nidophitites. Yeah. Also from Bethgalal and the region of Geba and Asmaveth, and for the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milali, Gilali, Mai, Nithanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people, on the wall above the tower of the of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, by the gate of Yashananah, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priest Eliakim, Messiah, Menanaim, Micaiah, Elanoi, El- Eloi, man, gosh, Eloi Zechariah, and Hanani. Man, Billy, you're just punishing me with these names lately. With trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzai, Jehoanan, Milkajah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms to the contributions, the first, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Let's pray. Lord, I'm 
I'm so grateful for your word and I'm thankful for the passages that even when our eyes can tend to glaze over because we're seeing lots of names, Lord, there's so much rich truth and grace in these verses, Lord God. We see the, the names of your people coming together to rejoice after they've been through so much, after the hardship of rebuilding the wall, after the process of recovenanting themselves to you, Lord Jesus. We see them just respond in celebration and singing and rejoicing. And there is so much to sing and celebrate and rejoice over in your world today, even when it doesn't seem like it. I pray that we would have attentive, open hearts as Billy speaks from your word this morning. Give us ears to hear and hearts that are soft to change and to be challenged and exhorted. Lord, I just pray for Billy. Give him wisdom. Give him clarity of mind and give him attentiveness to your word this morning. Thank you for blessing us um, with your word and how we can hear from it and be challenged by it this in Jesus' name. Amen. So having Josh read that, we call that strategic planning. Um, just so you know, that's what I was doing. So thanks for that, bud. I know that was a challenging passage. So yeah, we're in Nehemiah chapter 11, and we're going to kind of finish out chapter 12. Next week, we're going to land the plane in chapter 13, and then we will kind of just start into a really exciting season where we're going to be in the gospel of Mark. And let me say this, we have a gift for you guys that week that is going to help us as we go through that gospel. I'm really excited to share that with you. So there's like a little incentive for you to come and join us when we jump into Mark. So we are in Nehemiah again, 11 and 12, and we started into this passage last week with Josh's fantastic sermon. So if you haven't listened to that sermon, man, just let me commend it to you. Please go back and check it out. It's incredible. But this week, we're going to look back just a little bit in chapter 11 and finish out chapter 12. And let me just say, man, what do we do with lists like this, right? When you read passages like this, like Josh was saying, sometimes it's easy to kind of glaze over a little bit. It's easy to see these passages and feel like, yeah, that's not necessarily, you know, the, the most exciting or riveting passage. But I think for us, we mostly skip over these lists because these names, they seem pretty insignificant, right? They don't seem very exciting. But I doubt many of us got here this morning. We're like, man, he's going to do it. Like I can see the passage. We're getting ready to read these weird names and I'm into it, right? I doubt that happened for you, right? But these names, there's a reason why they seem insignificant and unexciting. And it's not just because they're difficult to pronounce. It's because these are just ordinary people, right? They're not celebrities. There's no glam, they're just ordinary people who worked ordinary jobs and lived ordinary lives. In a sense, they're just like us, right? Ordinary people, ordinary jobs, ordinary lives. And that's not a bummer for us at all, right? One of the major themes that runs throughout Nehemiah is that God is fulfilling his promises, right? Think of Nehemiah as this unfolding of what God specifically said he would do through his people. It's an integral part of the redemptive story of scripture. And as God has been redeeming a broken city, his city, he's done every single bit of it through all these ordinary people. Coram Deo, God is still at work in his world. But instead of building temples and walls, he's building his church. He's building the kingdom of God, and brick by brick, the kingdom of God is growing as people come to faith in Christ, and as the body of Christ is built up and edified. And guess who the Lord is using to make that happen? You and me, ordinary people with ordinary jobs and ordinary lives. God's intention for building the kingdom is you. He wants to use you. Now, here's the thing. 
Our being used of God does not come without great sacrifice. Right? We're going to see in our text, the people of Israel are sacrificing. But we're also going to see that that great sacrifice is accompanied by great joy. In fact, this joy is so great, right? Our text tells us that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. Everyone could hear Jerusalem's great joy. So what kind of sacrifices did they make that, would that they would experience then overwhelming joy, right? If God's intention is for him to use us and to see his kingdom expand, his glory made known, then what is it that you and I must give? What are the sacrifices we're called to make? Well, let's jump into our passage and let's see this first, that we're to give ourself, right? Give yourself. So looking back at Nehemiah, in chapters 1 through 6, we saw how the people rebuilt the wall. In chapter 7, they reestablished the identity of the people. In chapter 8, there's this return and recovery of the word of God. And in chapter 9, they respond to God's word by confessing their sins. And then chapter 10, what we kind of started to look at last week, was a renewal of the covenant. But now we kind of come to chapter 11 and 12, and there are two tasks that remain. The first is the city needs to be repopulated. And the second is that the walls need to be dedicated. So Josh, he took a, a, a look at this idea of repopulating last week. There was a problem, right? If you look at Jerusalem, you would think like, oh man, it's exciting. Like the, the walls are being rebuilt, the city's there. But the reality is a lot of people didn't want to live in Jerusalem. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? If an army's coming, right, the area they're going to look to cause trouble, they're most likely going to attack the city. They're not going to go to the small scattered houses on the outskirts. They're going to go straight for the city. Outside the city, you could have more land, which means you could have more opportunities, better farming. But in the city, there was a cost, a sacrifice. And in some ways, despite all of the rebuilding efforts in Jerusalem, it's not the nicest place to set up residence at this point in history. So they did the most logical thing possible, right? They forced people by drawing straws, not quite exactly. Instead, they casted lots, right? Verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of 10 remained in the other towns. It's almost like they're drafted into Jerusalem. Now look, I'm not saying you guys should make decisions this way, you know, if you're like trying to figure out how are we going to do what we're going to do, like I'm not telling you get a pair of dice and try and do it that way, Right? Again, we live in the New Testament era. We have the Spirit of God indwelling us. We don't need to flip coins, draw straws, or use magic eight balls to make decisions, right? Verse 1 is not necessarily an example to follow. It's a text that's descriptive, not prescriptive. It's important when we read Scripture that way. That's why we eat bacon to the glory of God, right? So we make sure that we're properly applying the text. So verse 1, again, it's not necessarily an example to follow, but we get to verse 2, however, and it introduces us to a different group than those who were kind of strong-armed or pushed or got the short end of the straw, right? This is different. It says in verse 2, And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So what's going on is that while 10% of the population is forced to go back in Jerusalem, there's some who say, hey, send me. I'll go. I'll go and live in Jerusalem. There were some who recognized that God was calling them to sacrifice for the sake of his plan to renew this city. Jerusalem was, again, it's the holy city of God. 
Jerusalem was the place where during this time, the worship of God could flourish. But in order for God's promise and plan to come to fruition, it required the people of God to say, we are willing. We are willing to lay down our comfort for the good of the kingdom. And so they give themselves. God always displays his glory through sacrificial volunteers. I mean, isn't that what Christ does? He left the glory and comfort of heaven to come to earth and walk the very streets of Jerusalem. And it was there that he was crucified for us, right? Following our Savior involves sacrifice, right? A lot of us, we've heard, again, Josh touched on this last week, the the lie that when you come to know Jesus, it's going to be sunshine and rainbows and happy days and everything's going to be hunky-dory. That's not true right? If you read the New Testament, most of the people who followed Jesus were martyred. They were killed. There is sacrifice to our faith. The people blessed all those who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem, right? In verse 6, they're referred to as valiant men. In verse 8, they're called men of valor. In verse 14, mighty men of valor. Why? All because of their sacrifice. So here we are called to give of ourselves for the kingdom of God. And sometimes, yeah, that means moving to hard places. Sometimes that means making hard choices. Sometimes that means choosing to do the type of things that nobody else wants to do. But you can sacrifice your time and your resources for the sake of the kingdom in ways that, yeah, maybe they seem small, but man, they hold deep significance. Right, if you help tear down on Sundays, if you're reaching out to those who are hurting, right? If you're, if you're seeking to love teachers and bless them in a really weird time, if you're going out of your way to welcome others, those who do all the behind-the-scenes projects, all of that the body of Christ needs. And we should bless the people who willingly offer to do these things and much more. We should willingly give of ourselves because the reward, it may not be recognition or notoriety, but Christ-likeness. So how could you give of yourself during this season? What does it look like for you to serve the body of Christ? I'll be honest with you. I'm sitting here thinking, on, I'm like, you know, it's kind of hard because nobody's going to be serving coffee during this time, right? And we're trying to stay distance from each other. And we're trying to fight this, like, I want to love people, but I can't hug you. It's a weird season. So maybe it looks like writing letters to members of the church. Maybe it means you pray ferociously. Maybe it means you ding-dong ditch cookies at people's doorsteps. I don't know. But we can pray and seek the Lord and say, God, how would you have me give of myself to see your kingdom grow, to see your kingdom advance? Maybe it's, it's having eyes up and seeing those who are hurting in our community saying, how can I love you? How can I serve you? How can I see the kingdom of God being made known and present here and now in the midst of this uncertain days? Now look, as we scan through chapter 11, verse 3, all the way down to chapter 12, verse 26, what sticks out? is the commonness of it all. Right, 11, 3 through 24, these are the people who lived in Jerusalem. And then in 25 through 36, it's those who live outside of Jerusalem. And then at the beginning of chapter 12, 1 through 26, it's the priests and the Levites and their ancestry. These are ordinary people, ordinary jobs, ordinary lives, yet God uses many people with different gifts and different skills to build his church. The important thing is that we give of ourselves to the Lord so that he can use us to accomplish his work. Look, each person is important. Each task is significant. But what sets these people apart, what makes them unique, it's their worship. 
Right? These lists ultimately tell us that they are a worshiping community. We see provisions being made in the text for those who would be worshiping through song. We see provisions for this order of service. And all of this shows that part of what makes ordinary people who are believers different than ordinary people who are not is the fact that you and I, we worship God. And that brings us to the second, the, the second we give, and it's this, give your praise. Give your praise. But the Jews were accustomed to having workers and watchers on the walls, right? We've been reading about that. There's political intrigue. Maybe there's people who are going to come and try to take apart what they're doing. But now, Nehemiah and Ezra, they assign people to be worshipers on the wall. How awesome is that? You're going to climb up the wall and you're going to dance, you're going to celebrate, you're going to sing to your great God. Time, energy, sweat, risk, sacrifice, all of it has gone into building up these walls. But now, now is the time for the people of God to celebrate. Singing is mentioned eight times, thanksgiving six times, rejoicing seven times, musical instruments three times. Now catch this, the walls were actually finished several chapters ago in chapter six. But you don't have the dedication until now. Why? Well, again, chapters 8 through 10, it's the dedication of the people. Nehemiah goes from let's build the wall to let's rebuild the people. And that makes sense. Right? What good is it to dedicate walls and gates without dedicated people? How genuine can praise and worship be when the heart of God, the heart of God's people is far from God? And here's how the dedication service goes. The leaders and singers are divided into two groups. Ezra leading one group and Nehemiah following the choir, directing the second group. And there's these processions that go through all the gates and they lead to the temple where the service climaxes with sacrifices offered to the Lord. So imagine yourself, picture that procession in your mind for a moment. This is not a dull and lifeless worship. The text indicates that they were actually, again, climbing up on the walls and marching on them, singing loud. Imagine all of those that had been taunting them, threatening them when they were in the process of rebuilding these walls. And now they see these same people singing on top of the walls. Here's a group of people whose hearts are full because of what God has done for them. Their gratitude is overflowing. Yeah, they've made sacrifices. They've worked hard, but there's great joy because look what God has done. This is not forced. This is not routine. And I think it's a good reminder that our level of praise or lack of praise is a barometer for our spiritual health and vitality. Do you find yourself overflowing with praise? Do you know what distinguishing mark of Christians, what, what kind of makes us unique is that we sing. We express our joy through musical worship and praise and our gatherings. They rightly involve singing. Now, that's, there, there's quite a bit here for us to learn about what it means to give our praise. What does it mean to worship? So I, I wanna, quickly want to just define this. What are seven aspects of praise? And I'll go through these quickly. The first is when we gather together in worship, it should be for the purpose of glorifying God. We worship to glorify God. Verse 27 of chapter 12. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Do you notice three key elements here? Celebration, thanksgiving, and dedication. Right? Celebration should be a normal part of our lives. 
Let me say that again. Celebration should be a normal part of our lives. We should be the happiest, most partying people on the planet because we have more reason to celebrate, more reason to have joy that in the midst of trials, in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of dark days, we can have robust, overwhelming joy because our king lives. We should be celebrating. And thanksgiving is ongoing, right? We see it in verse 27, 31, 40, 45, 46. Right? You have every reason, every day for thanksgiving. I mean, God's common grace alone is reason. His common grace has seen it fit. Guys, do you know this? Every Sunday we've been gathering outside, we've had huge storms, but never when we've met. God's common grace is so good to us. But his saving grace is so much sweeter he has brought us from death to life. And there's dedication, again, offering ourselves to God. As one commentator puts it, worship demands the surrender of ourselves and the surrender to him of all that he has given to us. The second thing is when we gather together in worship, the nature of our praise should be wholehearted joy. We should have joy. Again, worship is never meant to be a dull experience. Verse 43, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Everybody is rejoicing. And it's not just those leading worship, it's everyone. It's the men, the women, and even the children. Whenever these people came together for worship, their whole heart overflows with joy. Remember chapter 8, when the people were gathered together in the city to hear the word? And what they did, they, was, they rejoiced with great joy because now they understood the words that had been made known to them. So if there's no singing, there's no joy. And if there's no joy, then there's a heart disconnect. It says in verse 43 that God had made them rejoice with great joy. So what does that mean? It means joy is a response to the fact that God has saved, restored, and renewed them. After all, God had brought them out of Babylon. But there's an exodus out of Babylon in the same way there was an exodus out of Egypt. In Coram Deo, we have our own exodus experience that is a cause for great joy. Revelation 1.5 reminds us that Jesus loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom. We have been freed from the bondage of sin, and that should be a cause for joy that should lead to singing. Three, when we gather together in worship, there should be variety. Those responsible in Jerusalem for leading this celebration of worship, they used a wide range of musical gifts to express their adoration and praise, right? Again, worship is meant to be a shared experience where people bring their particular gifts. And sometimes if you're like me, that means you just stand out to the side and sing, right? You know, maybe you don't get the microphone and that's okay. Here we see in the, these verses, there's singing, there's cymbals, there's harps, there's lyres, there's priests with trumpets, we have two large choirs. Now, the point isn't that we should have every single instrument, though if you play the harp or lyre, please let me know. Right? I don't think we need to feel obligated to incorporate the cowbell into our service, though, Dan, that's a pretty good idea, actually. So just keep that in mind. I think it's a good reminder that whatever your preference is, right, whatever it is that you enjoy, it shouldn't be held as the only means of making praise to our God. Look, I'm guilty of this. I have huge opinions when it comes to music. And look, we want to be picky of content, but we want to have a robust, diverse style, right? We want to see cultural diversity. We want to have different sounds sonically. The issue isn't genre related. The issue is whether or not we are singing. 
whether or not we're participating. And if you aren't singing, man, then I would challenge you that most likely it's because there might be a heart issue, a disconnect from gospel truth that needs addressing. All right, let's keep going. Four, when we gather together in worship, we should prioritize purity. Verse 30, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Before the people led in worship, they were to pursue a clean heart. You see, more important than the quality of voices or the ability to play an instrument is the status of your heart. The priests purified themselves and the people before proceeding into worship. And this is not a mere ceremonial activity, right? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. The prophets rebuked God's people previously for making expensive sacrifices, for not living holy lives, and for not taking care of the vulnerable around them. Likewise, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for the same problem. Here's the deal. Unless you've come to know Jesus, unless you've been born anew, unless you've experienced the salvation, then you cannot worship the one true living God. You can have a lot of emotional responses. Right? I've seen a lot of people share the YouTube videos where unbelievers will listen to a worship song, and at the end, they're just like, I don't understand. I don't believe in Jesus, but I feel this emotional tug. And yet, you can have that. But an emotional response is not genuine worship. God does not receive the worship of somebody who's not been purified by the blood of Jesus. Scripture is clear on that because it's only in Jesus where we have something more than just a ritual. We have something more than just a ceremonial act. When a person is in Jesus, they've been washed in the blood internally and for eternity. They have been cleansed. And when we prepare to come to worship, we should be seeking to confess the ways in which we have offended God so that our heart might be in the right place as we come before the Lord, that we could come before our God honestly and humble, knowing that he receives us and forgives us. The next thing, when we gather together in worship, we should be mindful of past traditions, right? We, we see that they remember King David in 36, 45, and 46. They remember King David as well as all the previous worshipers in Israel's history. They enjoyed this sense of community with those who had worshiped before them. Dale, we are also debtors to the past, which means our worship should be both ancient and modern. Augustine said of God, he said, God is a beauty that is ever ancient, ever new. That's why we sing old songs and new songs. That's why we devote ourselves to the public reading of scripture. That's why we do the welcome. That's why you've seen us do creeds and responsive reading together. To be certain, we're not doing tradition for tradition's sake. But we look to songs for examples that express great biblical truths that have sustained believers for years and years. Right When we read the welcome and confession together, we are being reminded that generations stood before us. That just over 100 years ago in 1918, in the midst of a global pandemic, the church was singing songs of grace and truth and rehearsing, and, and rehearsing confession that generations before them and generations after them confess. That's why we sing, right? And that's why when we sing songs like, It Is Well With My Soul, we look at our climbing cases, we look at job loss, we look at the ominousness that is school this year and, and the, all the unknown timelines, and we can know when we, see things like, when we sing things like, It Is Well, we can remember Horatio Spafford, who's standing on the hull of a ship, looking out at the spot where his children died and drowned, sang, It Is Well With My Soul.
even though there was sorrow and uncertainty that washed over him, we can join with him because, again, truth, Coram Deo, is timeless. When we gather together next six, when we gather together, worship should be a witness. In verse 31 and 38, they were on the wall and they were a witness to the outside nations, right? In verse 43, it says, the joy coming from the city was heard elsewhere. News traveled fast. People could see that they were worshiping and that holds significance for you and I. Any person outside the faith who walks into our gathering should know what we believe and why we're singing. They should detect our joy. There's a sense in which we can easily think worship's just a personal thing, right? It's just me and Jesus. But that's not it at all, right? Worship is for other believers. Worship is for those who don't know Jesus. We sing courage over one another. And it's for those who are not believers that they would know that God is among us. You guys remember what happened in Acts 16 when Paul and Silas are singing in prison? A jailer gets saved. God uses our worship. And finally, seven, when we gather together in worship, there should be unity. It's a hard word these days, isn't it? Unity. In verse 27 and 28, we see those from the countryside, those in the city, all of them coming together to adore and praise God. Worship in and of itself is a unifying experience. Listen to how one commentator puts it. People from all walks of life stand in equal need of the Lord's mercy and all are debtors to his astonishing grace. Many of the things which might otherwise divide them become less than important in their united aim and privilege of adoring, praise, thanksgiving, and commitment. We should never allow our preferences about style and instruments to become divisive because worship should be the activity that brings us together. In our politically charged world where we see so many people angry about everything, we come together and we lay down our agendas and we come together under the banner of Christ. So we see we give of ourselves, we give of our praise, and then briefly, finally, we see that we also, third, give of our resources. Right? God is building his church. He's using ordinary people with ordinary jobs and ordinary lives to complete his work. And that happens as we give in these ways. So give of your resources. In verses 44 and 47, we read about the provision that were made for the temple. The Torah stipulates that there was provision for everything that was mentioned here. So what's evident from this is that they have studied the scriptures, they've seen what God requires, and they are committing themselves to make sure what God requires is rendered. Right? We worship God not just with our preparation, not just with instruments and singing, but also with our giving. Notice from these verses that the giving was 44. It was organized. There were men who were appointed for this service. It was specific. There was contribution, tithes, first fruits. It was grateful. Judah was pleased with the worship, uh, and it leads uh, where the worship leaders obligatory is the next one. All Israel contributed. It's regular. They gave of daily portions. It's universal. Everyone, including the Levites, participated. And for us, the New Testament picks up with this theme of contributing to the work of ministry in a similar way. And interestingly, when Nehemiah leaves for Jerusalem to return to his work in Persia, we're going to look at that next week. When he returns, what does he find? He finds all these things have deteriorated. The first thing to suffer was the generous support of the temple. People weren't giving. Their hearts weren't filled with worship. Now, look, I'm going to be honest with you guys. When I sat down to prep for this week and I was looking at this, I just thought, I'm just going to skip over that. Last thing I want to talk about in the midst of a global pandemic when people are, you know, dealing with a lot going on and they're just tired of it is to be like, hey, guess what? Y'all should be giving. 
I don't like talking about. I don't think any pastor I know loves to talk about giving. But here's the deal. It's in the text, and we can't ignore it. And truthfully, we shouldn't. Because giving is a regular part of worship. If we belong to the Lord, then that certainly means our money, our resources belong to him as well. The people of Israel were not thriving, yet they were sacrificially giving to support the worship of God. Their offerings went to support the worship of the Lord. And you get the idea from their perspective that whatever it costs, they're going to support the worship of God because that's what their lives are about. And friends, didn't it cost Christ everything to purchase our redemption? Did it not cost the Father when he sent his Son to die? For Jesus Christ to take upon himself the iniquities of this world, and it was the cost of his life. And so for you and I, by simply trusting in that sacrifice and that climactic act of self-giving, we could find the freedom and joy that we all long for. And friends, that's worth singing about. We give of ourselves We give of our praise. We give of our resources. And I just want to encourage you this morning as we come to a close with the fact that God has always been pleased to choose the weak things of the world. So if you're looking at your life right now and you're saying, man, I don't know how I'm going to make it. Our business is struggling. I don't know how I'm going to teach this year. I don't know what tomorrow looks like. My kids are driving me nuts. Whatever it may seem, if you feel weak, let me tell you, you're in good company. Because God chooses ordinary people with ordinary jobs and ordinary lives. God chose Abraham, a man with no children, and he wanted to bless the world through the one man and his descendants. And when Abraham's descendants had multiplied, guess what happened? They became slaves in Egypt. That's who God chose as his people, slaves, people who were in bondage. And they would be led by Moses, a man who had been a shepherd in the wilderness for 40 years hiding because he murdered someone. Then when God went to choose a king, he chose the youngest son of Jesse. Jesse hadn't even bothered calling David in from the sheep. He wasn't even expecting David to be chosen. God chose Ezra and Nehemiah, who for all their standing in the Persian court and the grand scheme of eternity, they're not that important themselves. And God chooses ordinary people like us and churches like ours for the manifestation of his glory and the advancement of his kingdom on the earth. Coram Deo, let's be those who embrace what God has done, who embrace our opportunity to steward and proclaim the gospel, who join with Paul in boasting in our weakness and live to worship. Let's give of ourselves sacrificially and let's worship with great joy. Let's pray together. God, we're so grateful for the hope that you give us in Jesus. We're so thankful, God, that you love us. God, that you use us for your for your glory, Lord, and our good. Would we be a people who trust in you? Would we be a people who rest in the goodness of Jesus? Would we seek you all the days of our life? Lord, would we cling desperately to the gospel truth? Would we see that, yes, there is a call for, a call for great sacrifice, but Lord, that leads to great, overwhelming joy. And would that propel us forward, Lord, to share this great, amazing hope, this great, amazing joy, that in the midst of tragedy, you lead us to triumph. In the midst of trials, you lead us to rejoicing. Help us to seek you all the days of our life. God, we're so grateful for you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Quorum Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. 
You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.